Greetings, 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 folks, and welcome back to your chosen podcast, The Africanist. I am your host, Bomber, and thank you for tuning in as usual. Uh, today, we have another special guest. Her name is Dr. Yomaira Figueroa Vasquez. Yomaira Figueroa Vasquez is an Afro Puerto Rican writer, teacher, and scholar. She earned an MA and a PhD in Comparative Ethnic Studies at the University of California, Berkeley. She is Associate Professor of Afro-Diaspora Studies at Michigan State University, as well as the co-founder and co-curator of Electric Marunech and the author of the recently published book entitled Decolonizing Diaspora, Radical Mappings of Afro-Atlantic Literature. Her published work can be found in several journals, including Hypersia, a journal of feminist philosophy, as well as the Journal of Decolonization. She is a founder of both the MSU Women's of Color Initiative and the Collaborative Hurricane Recovery Project. Dr. Figaro Vasquez is also a recipient of several fellowships, including the 2015-2017 Duke University Mellon May Sitpa and the 2021-2022 Cornell University Society for the Humanities Fellowship. Dr. Figueroa Vasquez, uh, thank you very much for uh, being uh, my guest on The Africanist. It is a pleasure to welcome you and I cannot wait to tackle our topic today, which will be about your book that came out last year, and it is entitled Decolonizing Diaspora. What is the book trying to accomplish? And how is it in conversation with the existing literature on decoloniality, diaspora, and Hispanophone studies? Oh, thank you so much for that question. And thank you for having me on your podcast. Um, yes, so the book is Decolonizing Diasporas, uh, Radical Mappings of Afro-Atlantic Literature. And in the book, um, what I am attempting to do is to trace the long histories of connection between the Caribbean, specifically the Latinx, and sp more specifically the Black Latinx Caribbean or Afro-Latinx Caribbean, so Afro-Cuban, Puerto Rican, and Dominican work in the diaspora um, in relationship to the work coming from Equatorial Guinea or Guinea Equatorial um, in Sub-Saharan Africa and its work in the diaspora. Um, and in doing so, it creates a conversation between um, the Afro-Atlantic Hispanophone. Um, and the Equatorial Guinea is the only Spanish-speaking nation state in Sub-Saharan Africa. And these three uh, archipel archipelagic islands, Cuba, Puerto Rico, um, uh, and Hispaniola, which is Haiti in the Dominican Republic, um, are the, the sole three uh, Hispanophone islands um, or archipelagic uh, formations um, in the Caribbean. Um, uh, and uh, not counting, obviously, the kind of uh, Gran Caribe or the continental Caribbean. Um, but in short, the book traces the kind of long connection, both across the kind of um, Spanish colonial rule, um, and specifically looking at um, 19th century crossings between um, these peoples um, and these nations. Um, so looking at, for example, the history of, uh, very quickly tracing the history of Cuban emancipados or emancipated Cuban slaves who are deported to Fernando Po, which is now um, uh, Bioko um, in Equatorial Guinea. Um, the history of anti-colonial agitators in Cuba and Puerto Rico and in the Philippines who are kidnapped by the Spanish and deported to a penal colony in Fernando Po um, as well. And then looking at the kinds of um, early literary connection and the kind of poetic odes between these places. Um, so looking at, for example, the poetry of, of um, Carlos um, Otón and his poetry to someone like Nicolás Guillén, um, the kind of great Afro-Cuban uh, uh, poet and writer. Um, in doing so, I kind of established that this connection is not something that we've made up. It's not like kind of exceptional, but actually there's these material connections between these places, as well as these like elagic and, and poetic connections between these places. And that um, in putting folks that are necessarily oftentimes outside of the discourses in conversation with each other, they can illuminate for us especially in the contemporary work, um, illuminate new dimensions to like well-worn themes and preoccupations and questions that we have about things like resistance, liberation, colonization, dictatorship, as well as the things that I cover in the book that include, you know, relations, witnessing, um, destierro, reparations, intimacy, um, and futurities. 
Um, and so the book is really trying to put, um, you know, Equatorianos uh, and diaspora in conversation with, you know, these Afro-Caribbean Latinx folks in the diaspora, kind of like a South-to-South dialogue in the quote-unquote global North, right? Um, and seeing how they can shift, they shift for us um, and offer us um, really radical imaginations, um, insurgent um, indictments against uh, forms of, of um, oppression and, and violence, um, and new ways to think about um, decolonizing politics. This book is is super rich in the sense that you delve into past and present uh, preoccupations, uh, including colonialism, uh, dictatorship, or authoritarianism in many places, uh, such as uh, Equatorial Guinea. But you also argue that aesthetic productions of Hispanophone Afro-Atlantic subjects are peripheral or peripherialized. <laughs> I hope I'm saying the uh, <laughs> term right. And that one of the things you try to also accomplish in this book is to bring these marginalized aesthetic productions into the central conversations, or you were trying to de-peripherialize them, if I can use that term. So why and how is Afro-Hispanic literature, for instance, sidelined? And how is your work trying to centralize them? Um, so in the book, I talk about this kind of peripheralized literature, and I build um, that term in, in, through two ways. So one, I'm thinking about the work of these Dominican um, studies scholars, Silvio Torres Tallán and Ramon Hernández. Um, they have a book called The Dominican Americans, which is published um, in, in the late 1990s. And they say in that book that if, for example, Latino studies or Latinx studies, as we would say now, is marginal, then Dominican studies within that is peripheral to that margin, right? Because of the kind of lack of work in that time around Dominicans, even though they were the fastest growing population of Latinx folks in the United States, right, at the time. Now that has definitely changed because there's this huge boom right now, um, and probably I would say in the last like 10 years in transnational Dominican studies. But I still was really, um, really caught with that idea of what, what it means to be on the periphery of the margins. Um, and I also think that it kind of lends itself to this other way that I was thinking about it, which is like within the context of world systems theory, right? Thinking about the core and the periphery, who feeds who, who sees who, who needs who, right? In this context. Um, so, um, but I thought that bringing that conversation, right? Um, informed by those two fields would be important in that it could allow me to think about, for example, Equatorial Guinea as this Afro-Hispanic literature that is being produced both somewhat in Equatorial Guinea, but mostly due to the dictatorship um, in Spain and the ways that it is because it's the only Spanish-speaking literature in Sub-Saharan Africa and because Equatorial Guinea is surrounded by Lusophone, Francophone, and Anglophone nation states directly, right? Um, it, uh, it is not necessarily part of the like African, African literary canon. Right? When we're thinking about African literature, it's very rare, if ever, that we would see the literature from Equatorial Guinea being included in that, right? Um, and that's by nature of them being kind of left out uh, due to this kind of linguistic difference. And even though their literature is produced in Spain, and even though they're former colonial subjects of Spain, their literature is not necessarily thought of as part of the Spanish canon, right? Or even considered as part of like, the Spanish letters. And when we think about, for example, something like African studies, we know that Equatorial Guinea doesn't really have a large place within the concept of African studies. Um, and even though there are these kind of connections to the Hispanophone world, to the Caribbean specifically, um, and perhaps even to Latin America, uh, in Latinx studies and Latin American studies, folks are also not engaging with the thought or the histories of Equatorial Guinea. Um, and so on the one end, I was thinking about, you know, this kind of work that falls on the periphery of already marginalized fields and disciplines, right? Um, on the other end, I was thinking about the Afro-Latinx, right, Atlantic. So folks who are uh, Latino or Latinx folks and the ways that like um, Afro-Latinx literature and work is oftentimes um, obscured, erased, um, uh, or completely ignored, right? Within the kind of larger markets, oftentimes you can have like one, big name at a time, right? Um, and um, and also the fact that, you know, and I think things are changing a little bit now, but the fact of the matter is, is that folks who are Afro-Latinx, who are like Latinx folks of, of African descent, right? Um, and even folks who are like Afro-Indigenous, um, their works 
are not necessarily like we're, we're fighting to get our work seen in our fields as well, right? Um, and not to mention that because again, the language, it means that oftentimes even in black studies, um, it's often overdetermined by, um, by English and then maybe some French, right? But the Hispanophone world or the Spanish speaking world um, and, and black subjects who speak Spanish are not often included, right? Um, in the conversation, in the discourse, um, in the pedagogy around blackness, even though the majority of black people outside of the continent of Africa speak Portuguese and Spanish, right? Um, they're not necessarily thought about as central to the way we think about black studies. And part of that has to do with the fact that the US is a hegemony and oftentimes what we say and do um, uh, and, and consider uh, to be part of blackness is, is what goes globally, right, in many ways. Um, but all that to say is that I was interested in the ways that these folks, this, these folks and these works that I feel are so important and these lived experiences that are so rich um, and necessary for us to bear witness to are oftentimes left out or unseen, um, ignored and are peripheralized. Beyond, like more than that, I was thinking that it would be so powerful to consider what would it mean to put um, two bodies of literature, these multiple groups of Black Atlantic folks, like these Afro-Atlantic subjects, in conversation with each other um, and, and to consider this like kind of a periphery to periphery conversation. What would it mean to talk to folks who are on the outside of so many of these discourses um, and to hear what they have to say, what they have endured um, and how they conceive of really important parts of like the, the thoughts that we have, right? Um, and uh, and so for me, the, the kind of thinking about these peripheralized literatures and these aesthetic productions um, are, become and um like thinking about the way that they're sidelined <laughs> becomes an important part of the analysis but also thinking about what they illuminate by virtue of being on the outside um is equally illuminating to me um and so in many ways i'm just trying to um rather than just make them central at the expense of anyone else um put them in conversation with each other to see how the preoccupations that emerge um help us think differently um about the kinds of concerns that we have and actually add new dimensions to our thoughts. Awesome. You also explore in this book uh, the notion of intimacy and what you call erotic freedom in relation to uh, authoritarianism or dictatorship coloniality. How do these notions, the notion of intimacy and erotic freedom, play out in the Afro-Atlantic diaspora context? And also, have they been altered or changed because of colonial contact? Thank you for that question. Yeah, so I opened the book with a chapter that is called Intimacies, right? Um, and in it, I am trying to trace um, the ways that the kind of um, the coloniality, right, of intimacy um, has meant that um, that these Afro-Atlantic subjects, Afro-Hispanic um, and Afro-Latinx folks, um, uh, are touched by and, and influenced by um, uh, by these forms of power that are often far, far in the distance, or, or, um, or how specifically how occupation, U.S. occupation, and the Dominican Republic on one end, and dictatorship um, on the other hand, um, are able to impact the most intimate aspects of people's lives, including what if they can drink water, if they have clothing, if they have soap, can they feed their children, right? Um, and the way that um, particular kind of colonial scripts about who people are and what role they should have um, means that uh, for, particularly for black women um, and for peasant or poor black women, um, it means that they have just one way to live their lives, right? Um, and so in that, in that chapter, I'm looking at um, three novels um, and they're very different in the way that they're talking about the intimacy of, of uh, US occupation on one hand and then dictatorship in Equatorial Guinea um, on the other hand, right? So in one of the texts, I'm looking at the ways that, it, well, I think at first I'll practice this by saying that in each one of these texts, even though each of the situations is quite different, one of the things that really pulled me into thinking about this was the fact that um, 
the kind of erotic autonomy um, and the kind of corporeal consciousness, what Nadia Sales Salgado calls la conciencia corporal, right, um, becomes such a key part to the ways that Black women and girls um, and Black femmes are able to find um, and enact forms of freedom that are beyond the kind of imagination um, of both colonial, dictatorial powers, as well as like this um, uh, occupation, right? Um, this U.S. Uh, imperial occupation, um, and that in enacting this form of erotic freedom, um, a particular kind of um, urgent desire to follow their bodies um, creates these spaces um, of liberation and otherwise um, quite. Um, uh, uh, circumscript uh, uh, situations. Um, so on the one hand, the Dominican Republic, I'm looking at the ways that, you know, there is these, these themes of, of intimate domination by U.S. forces um, and how the protagonist goes and eschews like all types of uh, propriety and respectability um, and desires to follow her, you know, erotic freedom um, and her erotic desires throughout uh, the Dominican Republic while also contending with the kind of um, the sense of cartography, the sense of like, you know, who am I in this world? Seeing the, the globe for the first time, right? Um, and and realizing that she is quote unquote like a speck, right, um, in the world, and wanting to live much bigger and broadly beyond that speck, right? Um, on the side of Equatorial Guinea, I'm looking at the at the situation in Anabon, um, which is the island furthest away from the actual seat of power in Equatorial Guinea. Um, they're also a former Portuguese colony. Um, that really heavily resisted Spanish colonization and has suffered the consequences of that resistance. And so in that novel, I am tr the, the novel is um, Ar del Monte de Noche, or The Mountain Burns by Night by Juan Tomás Ávila Laurel. Um, and in that, he is kind of retelling the story of his youth, right, in Anabon, and all of these calamities that are caused by the dictatorship that is so, so far away, right? And yet the impacts that the dictator makes, the, the impacts of the decisions that the dictator makes impacts every part of their lives. And also kind of thinking through um, the kind of um, abandonment, uh, both like the, the violation of this, of this on any people, then the abandonment of these people, and then what happens when folks begin to turn on one another. And it's a really beautiful, a really beautiful book. Um, and one that offers us a lot of insight on both the human condition, but also what it means to take up these questions of intimacy and erotic freedom across a series of, of, of um, lines of inquiry. Um, and then finally, I looked at La Bastarda by Melibea, uh, Trifonia Melibea Obono, um, who is um, uh, a, a young writer from Equatorial Guinea. She's the first uh, woman writer to be translated to English from the Equatorial Guinean tra uh, tradition. Um, and she also, this, this novel, La Bastarda, is the first LGBTQ novel um, in the Equatorial Guinean tradition. Um, and in this novel, she talks about, and I think this goes to this kind of second part of your question about uh, the kind of colonial context. She talks about the kind of double juncture of both kind of colonial heteropatriarchy and, and she belongs to the Fang ethnic group and a Fang heteropatriarchy, right? So it's not just the kind of critique of, of the kind of remnants of colonialism, um, but also about the kinds of um, indigenous forms of being and knowing that would delimit, right? the lives of, of gay, lesbian, and queer people. Um, and so in that novel, she is really inciting what is the, the contemporary way that, um, that queer uh, subjects in Equatorial Guinea uh, literally fight for their lives, right? And so in this, in this novel, she traces, right? It's, it's really incredible. It's actually a really short novel, really kind of like urgently written. <laughs> um, she traces the life of of um, Okomo and and the ways that um, you know her kind of uh, awakening um, as the queer subject, her this awakening of her desire leads her both to try to have, find answers from her family, but also to finally reject right um, the kind of uh, her fang community um, and to go live uh, with her queer uncle, um, her lover, his lover, um, and you know and their friends in the forest, right? And so in this way, following that corporeal consciousness and that erotic freedom away from this form of like, of, you know, compulsory heterosexuality, right? Um, that is both um, colonial, dictatorial and indigenous, right? Um, and so for me, each of these texts bring up in very different ways how the body and in particular black women um, and their bodies, um, both their knowing and their desires are used as ways to push forward forms of resistance and liberation 
And it's not to say that this is all like, you know, peachy, right? Like there, there, are, there are consequences to be suffered in every single one of these. Um, and yet, and still, I think it's so important to know how um, these structures of power are not all encompassing, right? There are cracks in this. And it is in those cracks that we find these incredible examples of what uh, my colleague, Jessica Marie Johnson calls black femme freedom, right? And these freedom practices. And we have to pay attention and bear witness to these um, in order um, to see different kinds of possibilities um, within all of our kind of situations under uh, colonization, neocolonization, coloniality, dictatorship, et cetera. Another uh, concept that is central to your book is the concept of dispossession or what uh, you call, uh, excuse my Spanish, destiero, I think. Perfect. That's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so destiero is very central to your analysis. Could you elaborate more on that dispossession and how it is or how it can be a negation of blackness? and sometimes of ritual practices. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so in, you know, in the book, I, I think the third chapter probably is Destierro. Um, and in that chapter, I am trying to um, wrestle with, um, with overlapping forms of dispossession. Um, and I come to that um, by thinking through as myself, as you know, I'm a black Puerto Rican woman, a colonial subject, because Puerto Rico is still a colony of the United States. It's the world world's oldest colony. Um, and as someone who is um, uh, living, right, in the United States, in the settler colonial nation, right, um, on the lands of indigenous people. And so I was thinking about the question of diaspora, of overlapping forms of diaspora being part of the, the um, African diaspora, right, through the transatlantic slave trade, and then being part of the Puerto Rican diaspora, Right now, there's more Puerto Ricans, for example, living in the United States than there are in our archipelago, right? Um, which is which is incredible to think. Um, and I was thinking about what it means to bear witness to um, the continual forms as well as the historic forms of dispossessing people from their lands, right? Across a different series of methods and vectors and moments. Um, so all that to say that the concept of the Sierra is one that was really central in terms of bringing together discourses both in African studies, particularly in the context of Equatorial Guinea, where there's important there's important um, things that we need to bear witness to as it comes uh, as we talk about um, ethnic groups um, and lands, um, as well as when we're talking about the Caribbean and its diaspora, particularly to a place like the United States that is built on enslavement and indigenous dispossession. So the Sierra means it's it's a term in Spanish for exile, right? But it's not the term for exile. The term for exile in Spanish is exilio. And then the other term for exile is destierro, to be in, and that means to be um unearthed. Like destierra is, is earth and this, you know, like it's to be torn, right? To to pull away from. So it's a it's a word that basically means to be forcefully torn from the earth, to be ripped up from the earth, right? Um, and what I try to do in that context is to think about diaspora not just as a one-time event but in its kind of long durée. So think about um, how the kind of colonial project that emerges in the 16th century um, and thinking about the long 16th century um, necessitates and, and particularly the kind of um, development of modern capitalism necessitates uh, uh, lands and resources. It also needs to pull people away from land and resources and bring in labor, right, for those. And so basically tearing uh, dispossessing people of their lives and livelihoods in one place and bringing them onto the dispossessed lands of others in, in, in the other context. And so for me, Destero becomes an important way to kind of see the palimpsest of dispossession as part of the modern colonial project. But it's not enough to think about Destierro as only tied to lands. So Destierro is also about cosmologies. It's also about language, culture, food, right, practices. Um, it is the way that these kind of colonial projects try to um, enact what Ngugi Wationgo calls the cultural bombs, right? Um, to make you see your past as one long event of, of non-accomplishment, right? Um, to make you want to distance yourself from your people, right? Um, and I also think it's not enough for us to see Destierro in our own context, because in order for this to actually be a truly decolonizing context, one that is not radically individualistic, we actually need to understand 
the destierro or the dispossession of others, right? To see it in a palimpsest, to see it in relation as these overlapping forms um, uh, of, of tearing people away from, from their land and land-based practices and cultures and languages, et cetera. Um, and so in that chapter, I'm looking both at the context of Equatorial Guinea, for example, um, look, thinking about the fact that the Fang uh, ethnic group is the kind of ruling ethnic group in Equatorial Guinea, the kind of most powerful group, where the two dictators uh, uh, have been part of specific, who are uncle and the nephew, um, are part of the Mongomo clan, um, and how the seat of power is actually this island that is not on the continent, it's this island um, that is Bioko, and the seat of power within that is Malabo. Um, but what's interesting is that that island, it is the Bubi ethnic group is autochthonous to the island. And so if you talk to folks who are Bubi, they will talk about the kinds of systematic eradication, right? Of their uh, attempted eradication of their culture, attempts, uh, and what they would argue is, is a kind of genocidal uh, move, right? To remove them and their claims to that land. Um, in the novel, I'm looking specifically um, at this novel called um, El Dictador de Corisco, the Dictator of Corisco, which is another one of the islands of Equatorial Guinea, and looking at the decisions that made by the dictator that would dispossess people of their land, of their access to fresh water, um, and also of their memories, right? To even remember the horrors of dictatorship, to remember um, colonization is kind of like outlawed, right? They, you, can't have no, you can have no history within this context. Um, what's important for me about the, the literature of Equatorial Guinea is that so much of it acts as history because um, there is, uh, you know, there's no free press, there's no uh, oppositional political parties, you know, there's, um, there's this in, increasing repression in which many of the literature uh, that I study is, doesn't circulate within Equatorial Guinea. There's only one bookstore. It's in Malabo on the island of Bioko. Um, and it has many, many biographies of the dictator, right? So a lot of this, this fiction that is being produced really is a reflection of these lived histories and experiences. And so in that context, they're, they're tracing <laughs> real life events um, and also helping us understand through memory work how the dispossession of memory is also part of these kinds of uh, authoritarian, dictatorial, and colonial um, practices that have endured, right? Um, and so in that chapter, Destierro, on the one end, I'm looking at that. On the other end, I'm looking at the particular, what you asked in the second part of the question, the negation of Blackness and the negation of um, Afrosyncratic ritual practices. And I'm, I look at a novel from a Dominican writer, Geographies of Home, which is written by Loaida Maritza Perez. Um, and in that novel, what we see is um, a, a very large Dominican family living in the diaspora um, and the kinds of um, fractures that occur across uh, the re their own rejection or uh, some of the family's rejection of their blackness in terms of like racialized experiences, right? And how it leads to quote unquote madness. But then on the other hand, we're looking at the mother, right? The, the mother of the protagonist and um, the fact that she comes from a family that is deeply, um, deeply spiritual and engages in particular kinds of ritual practice, practice Afrocentric ritual practices, practices that are not named in the novel, but she conjures them up and actually thinks about um, the way that she rejected those practices and married someone who was a very conservative Christian, a Seventh-day Adventist, um, as a way to kind of reject that kind of, um, reject that part of her identity as a Black woman, right? And then realizes later on in her adulthood that it is those very same practices that could help her children um, in the kind of situations that they're facing. And so what we see is this contention, right, with memory, with forgetting and with these ritual practices and with identity, right? This idea of um, of this kind of racialized identity that then they have to cling on to, right, in order to survive, because they realize that the kind of turning away, right, the kind of um, negation of, of their Blackness um, by virtue of negating these practices that are inherited um, is actually causing more harm um, to their family. Um, and so this is, it's just a really interesting, interesting text, and one in which that takes the question of Destierro um, to a different place. So on the one end, I'm thinking about Destierro physically being torn away and, and the negation of people's access to land in, in Equatorial Guinea. And on the other end, I'm thinking about this kind of more like metaphysical um, and gendered and racialized way of thinking about this theater and what that means. And I think one last thing I'll say about this theater is that, you know, I'm so excited for the ways that the novels think about and help us to think about this theater in multiple ways. And one of the things I trace in the novel from the Dominican Republic is this um, moment, this like kind of these small moments in the novel where these women particularly prepubescent girls 
and um, and pregnant women have a desire to eat dirt, to eat grass, right, to eat earth. Um, and so in it, you know, you can trace that, right, that long history of what is called pica or pica to the kind of medical pathology um, that is documented for enslaved people in both um, um, in the Caribbean as well as like the Americas more broadly, right? Um, and the ways that in that uh, kind of overseers um, and slave owners were really kind of concerned with the fact that their uh, slaves were eating dirt, right? We're eating this non-nutritive substance. Um, and so we had all of these, uh, these studies of these doctors that are coming, they don't understand why. Um, and as I traced the, that on the one end to this medical pathology, I also traced it on this other end to these, these characters' desires to go back to the Dominican Republic, a place that they can't really return to, right? Um, their desires to be moored to a place, right? To kind of, to eat this dirt, um, to, to have this uh, come to them as they're kind of reaching adulthood, um, and also to have it uh, to feed their children, right, in utero. Um, and there's also these scenes where they're, they're, uh, one of the girls that's like a prepubescent girl is, you know, in the Dominican Republic, um, masturbating in the grass and uh, masturbating in the dirt and like chewing on grass, right? So this kind of moment of this like uh, erotic excess, right, on this earth um, becomes uh, such an important and vivid image um, to kind of think about. Um, as we're thinking about the multiple layers of what it means to conceive of um, overlapping forms and intergenerational forms of this possession or this vehicle. Ne crois-tu pas que ça mérite là Un peu de respect, de reconnaissance Ça pense à ta mère, la de l'amour Écoute, écoute là Ama ou nama, nama ou ama Regarde, tu verras Ça pense à ta mère, la de l'amour N'aie pas peur de ça Ama ou nama, nama ou ama En elle, moi je crois Elle fait seulement de l'amour sur nos batailles Mais jamais une goutte de sang Ne crois-tu pas que rien que pour ça On pourrait le dire un remerciement So, of course, when, when you talk about colonialism, coloniality, uh, you also talk about the idea of dispossession, by extension, the idea of reparations. And you argue uh, in your book that the concept of destierro also requires material reparations as well as decolonizing reparations. How are the conversations around the issues of reparations unfolding in the Afro-Atlantic diaspora? And do you also think that material reparation, as you put it in the book, will become a reality soon in the diaspora? Um, I really do hope so. Um, I really do hope that it become a, a reality. Um, mm -hmm. I think, you know, when I'm thinking about like what is actually happening on the ground, um, that chapter on that, I think I talk about the CARICOM lawsuit in 2014. Um, and the kind of, um, so CARICOM is um, this uh, kind of coalition of Caribbean nations. Um, and they sued Europe. Um, they sued, they think they sued like 14 African, uh, 14 uh, European um, nations. Uh, for reparations for slavery. And so I start the chapter by thinking through this lawsuit, this monumental lawsuit, and also thinking about the very long history of reparation in the U.S. context for enslavement, right? Um, and also the kind of fight against it, right? Like the kind of ways that um, fights for reparations have been continually undermined by the state um, and continually undermined by Europe. Um, and, um, and so, but I do think that this is, a, a an ongoing battle and one that is worthy, right? Like we actually, you, you know, we are demanding material reparations and I'm thinking about in my, the context of Puerto Rico as this, as a colony, right? Like we have, um, these longstanding kind of positions around the question of our status, um, as a nation, um, whether it is to become a, the 51st state of the United States whether it should be independent or whether it should stay the same as it is, quote unquote, like a colony commonwealth. 
Um, and one of the kind of the more radical kind of branch is thinking about both independence, but also reparations, right? An independence that comes with um, an accounting for the hundreds of years of you know colonization under Spain and then the hundred plus years of colonization under the United States. So I do think that, you know, these are really important conversations to have. In the context of Equatorial Guinea, you know, one of the things that I noticed in the literature, and I'm interested, you know, I'd, I'd love to kind of hear more from folks there now um, in terms of what they're thinking about reparations. One of the things that was, um, that happened was that in the 1990s, there was some offshore oil founds. And so as a result, Equatorial Guinea, or I would say at least the, um, kind of ruling class and ruling family of Equatorial Guinea is very, very, very wealthy, very wealthy, probably in the top two or three most wealthiest nation states in, in Africa, right, on the continent. Um, and so as a result, I'm not sure what kinds of conversations are being had about reparations, right, um, in that way. But I do know that in the literature that I was looking at, there was a sense of thinking about colonial reparations and one that was thinking about um, specifically the kind of um, pronatalist reparations. What does it mean to repair a nation with its children, right? With the kind of continuing bringing on of generations um, of people. And so that is um, an, a novel that I studied uh, by Joaquin Imbomi Wacheng, um, which is called Matinga, Sangre en la Selva, Matinga, Blood in the Jungle. And um, in that novel, it really kind of is, is building on Indoe myth um, and mythology as well as like mythologies around um, uh, imagining around the Mamiwata mami and, and, um, and thinking about the kind of uh, pro-natalist um, move in relationship to like the, the fight for freedom from, um, uh, from, from the Spanish you know, colony, coming from the Spanish uh, colonial powers. Um, and then on the other side of the Atlantic, the kind of text that I was thinking about were looking at both um, material reparations, like what happens if you decide um, that you're just gonna kind of copy the same thing that capitalism is doing um, and just say like, we're gonna make reparations on our own terms. But basically it's also very kind of colonial and anyways extractive. Um, and when that fails, um, what happens um, to the kind of folks who are engaging in that practice? And so, I mean, to make a long story short, one of the things that um, that I trace in the kind of thinking about reparations is what you noted decolonizing reparations. And what I argue is the reparation of the imagination. Um, and part of this is thinking about what would it mean for us? First of all, what would it mean for us to accept the reparations that will calculate intergenerational forms of harm into a dollar amount, right? So they can say like, okay, so for the past 500 years, we have, you know, raped, dispossessed, pillaged, taken, starved, right? Like killed, blah, blah, blah. And that comes to $800, right? Like, would we be satisfied with the reparations that would like calculate the harm done to a dollar amount? Um, and as that a sole reparation, um, what can the reparations truly do for us? Um, or what kind of reparations can we imagine outside of the reparations that have been um, dictated to us, right? Like by, by modern, you know, the, the reparations that we understand now is very, very modern, right? Very new. Um, and then um, on the other hand, thinking about what happens when we do get material reparations, how do we ensure that we don't reenact the same kind of radical individualism um, and kind of reenact same forms of violence uh, within and across our communities? And I, and I build, <laughs> I was really thinking about this as a preoccupation because I, a few years ago, I was at a conference. Um, and there was a conversation about Black and Indigenous reparations in, in the U.S. and Canada and North America, basically. Um, and people were talking about these impasses that happened right across Black and Indigenous communities. And there was a moment in which, you know, someone said, you know, well, you can have the mule, but the 40 acres are ours. Right. So Black people, you can have the mule, but the 40 acres of land belong to Indigenous people. And as someone who is not from the United States, right, I'm not, uh, you know, from this country, um, my histories of enslavement are not here, right? Like my family history is not here. I was kind of like, oh, wow, this is really intense. And also like, how do I, how would I even step into this conversation? Like, how would I even step into a conversation with indigenous people whose land I'm on and with black people whose families, right? Intergenerationally have been harmed by the state and who were enslaved by the state, right? Um, and so when I was thinking about um, reparations and particularly reparations of the imagination, I was thinking about what it would mean for us to repair our relationships with each other 
beyond the kind of limits that have been offered to us by um, by the settler nation state and by the modern colonial projects, right? So that when we do get those reparations, we are prepared, right, to imagine differently what our futures can look like, if that makes sense. Um, so hopefully, you know, I know I, I, know I zigged in Zach, but, you know, that's basically that chapter in terms of thinking about reparations. I was really, um, really concerned with like a series of, of mm-hmm. preoccupations and actually the literature really helped me think about them um, in different ways. So that's definitely a very a great chapter. I mean, the book as a whole is is great, but I think that chapter was certainly uh, <laughs> my favorite for oh. <laughs> uh, many reasons. So now, when you write a monograph like this, I mean, you've certainly, uh, or this is certainly the result of many trips across the Atlantic, because, you know, you talk about all these countries in conversation with each other in all these histories across the Atlantic. So can you tell us more about your experiences traveling and spending time in the Afro-Atlantic and conducting research for this monograph? Yeah, yeah. Um, all of that kind of stuff is, is you know, as researchers, like we do this, a lot of this traveling to do the work and all of none of that really gets to be part of the book, right? <laughs> I conducted a lot of interviews for this book and actually the I don't really talk about those interviews here they were just became kind of um contextual knowledge for me right as I was like writing about um the the text and so one day I think I like <laughs> um transcribe them and, and publish them or at least put them on my website so people can see you know hear the writers voices themselves you know um and so in terms of like traveling across the Atlantic I mean because I'm from the Caribbean you know Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic and you know um, uh, and Cuba are very much connected in, in, in the kind of both in the imagination and the discursive way um, in different ways. And so um, I did not travel to Cuba, but I did travel to Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic. Um, Puerto Rico is home, though, so it's very different. I do want to say that um, I do want to say something about traveling to Equatorial Guinea, though. Um, so it it was an interesting experience for me in that, um, uh, you know, I had to first travel to Spain. And from there, travel to Equatorial Guinea because it's banned to travel there from so many different places. It's very hard to get to Equatorial Guinea, um, and it's it, and for me, you know, I I got to this project through thinking about African literature mm-hmm. um, and the resonances that I saw with Caribbean literature. So when I went to Equatorial Guinea, I was really excited to to kind of connect with folks and talk to people. Um, but there were some assumptions that I had made as somebody from the Caribbean about being on this other like this other Atlantic island, right? So when I got to Equatorial Guinea, I was like oh, you know, can we, can we drive around the island? I want to kind of see the geography of the island. And the folks there were like, no, no, you actually cannot drive around the island. You need a pass to get from city to city, right? And indeed, there's paramilitary police at the beginning and end of every city who you need to pay or bribe to let you go from one place to another, right? Like, it's just, it's just heavily, heavily policed state, right? Um, and the other thing that for me was kind of incredible was thinking about, okay, so we have this Spanish speaking literature. I speak Spanish, although I speak Spanish with a Caribbean accent. And even though in Equatorial Guinea, they do also have a little bit of a Caribbean, like Caribbean words because of that history of crossing from the 19th century, which is interesting that they still have that kind of a few little things. Um, it's, they might be the lingua franca, but people are speaking all of their indigenous languages, right? So when I was in Equatorial Guinea, versus somewhere like Puerto Rico or the Dominican Republic where like it's Spanish everywhere, right? Um, in Equatorial Guinea, it was like just a beautiful cacophony of languages everywhere I went, right? Like not only folks speaking like Fang and Bubi and Dewey and um, uh, Falagiambo, but folks also speaking like Portuguese and French, also like a pidgin English. Um, uh, and so folks were just, <laughs> so for me, that was like this incredible moment in which I could see the similarities, right, between the Caribbean and Equatorial Guinea, but I really had to be there to see the differences, like the deeply different place that it was, so that mm-hmm. I could be true, right, in my in my book to um, making sure that I wasn't just trying to flatten those out and be like, oh look, it's black people in the Atlantic, right? Like, <laughs> oh look, it's all dictatorship. Oh, they were colonized by the same people. Okay, that doesn't matter, right? Like, what actually matters is, you know, mm-hmm. h- how they're imagining and thinking. And so, um, so I had that experience of going there. I had some a few interesting experiences um being stopped like with folks that I was with um uh and having to explain right some things and also things like I couldn't 
I'm, I, I was there and I did some recordings of interviews, but I couldn't take photos. You can't take photos, right, of, of really anything. Um, and then I had the opportunity a few years later to then bring two writers from Equatorial Guinea to Puerto Rico. So for me, more than me traveling, it was also that kind of exchange. So I brought them to Puerto Rico for a literary festival, uh, Festival de la Palabra, which is kind of like the largest literary festival in the Caribbean. And they presented their work all across the island, like, you know, kind of getting a new readership for their work. Um, and then I was able to take them to the rainforest and to all these places. And really, and I end the book with a kind of a, a moment that I had of this relation and uh, this, this really uncanny moment of taking one of the writers, Jaime Cipi Mayo, to the mountains <laughs> mm-hmm. and her being like, oh, this reminds me of home, right? Like this actually reminds me of, this reminds me of, of the book from where I'm from, you know? Um, and so I thought that was really a powerful moment um, to have those kind of exchanges across the place and also think about the similarities and the radical differences in, in being in these different places. awesome so all right we we are nearing the end of our conversation but as usual i end uh, uh with my guests uh by asking them three fun questions number one what are your top three novels okay um okay so i have so many novels since i read novels for a living mm-hmm. um i have so many favorite novels so i would say um novels that have really impacted me um beloved tony morrison's beloved good one. um beloved by tony morrison yeah i said that's a good one yeah i always i teach it whenever i can um I also love, you know, the the thing that really got, got me started into this project was reading Things Fall Apart alongside Ngugi Wationgo. So actually, my chair was Things Fall Apart and then reading Ngugi Wationgo right afterwards. Uh, um, and then I would say, mm-hmm. yeah. And then a novel that I really love that I also talk about in the book. Uh, actually, it doesn't call, it's a Vietnamese American novel. It's called um, The Gangster We Are All Looking For by Letty Diem Thuy. Um, and it's a novel that I really love. Um, and I, I used to teach it when I was teaching ethnic studies. And now I try to teach it whenever I can. Mm-hmm. And I know there's a bunch of other ones too, especially from the Caribbean, but I'm going to leave it at those. Two. Uh, and then number two, top three meals. What okay, are <laughs> your top three favorite dishes that you okay. can live without? Can I live without? Okay, so I'm thinking <laughs> about, it's going to be like mostly Puerto Rican food. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's fine. So it's um, arroz and pelmi. So it's like um, it's like our national dish. It's like rice and pigeon peas, or in, in the English Caribbean, we call it rice and peas. And pernil okay. um, is like pork shoulder. Um, and then I also love mofongo, um, which is like um, or actually like trifongo. So it's like um, plantains, yuca, and like ripe and unripened plantain and yuca, like cooked mashed together and then ch- with chicken like or with like you know seafood or bacalao yeah especially my favorite like with, is with bacalao so mofongo yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> and i think that those are the two or did i say a third one or not yet or no dude you, yeah there's one more one more okay and one more uh, pizza i guess you know <laughs> <laughs> pizza. pizza is the yeah. caribbean is it <laughs> <laughs> no it's not no it's not but you know i grew up um partially in hoboken new jersey it's a very like it's Italian and Puerto Rican town mostly. So, yeah, we, you know, we grew up with a lot of Italian food. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The Northeast is... The Northeast, is, yeah. It's very pizza heavy. <laughs> <laughs> it is really In a is. good way, yeah. Pizza is Yeah, good. yeah. Uh, and then the last one, um, top three places you haven't visited yet, but would love to go see sometime soon. Okay. Um, I have... I On my list is Portugal. Um, and, uh, part of that is, uh, I just heard that they have this really incredible kind of insurgent community, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, of like anarchists and I'd love to kind of visit. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never been to Ghana. Mm-hmm. Um, actually I've never been to Nigeria either. So either Ghana or Nigeria. Okay. Um, and, and Costa Rica. 
Costa Rica. Okay, Ghana, Nigeria, Costa Rica. I and I haven't been to any of those myself. No. Where would no. you go? Top three places. Oh, man. Okay, I would love to visit actually South Africa. I mean, Ghana, Ghana has always been on my list, though. Ghana and Japan. I'll say. Oh yeah. Yeah, I would Japan. love to visit Japan too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I have a lot more places, but yeah, top three. I would say those three. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, uh, Jomaira, thank you so much for uh, being my guest on the Africanist podcast. It's been a pleasure to talk with you, and I hope that you will come back sometime soon to talk more <laughs> about your uh, ongoing project. Feel free to come back anytime. And uh, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate you. You're a great host. <laughs> All right. Thank you very right. much. So <laughs> I will give you guys a rendezvous next month for another uh, episode of The Africanist with another special guest. In the meantime, stay tuned and stay safe and healthy. <laughs> Africa,